Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two segments today, the historian Nancy McLean will talk about the relationship between Milton Friedman's work on school vouchers and the South's massive resistance to desegregation. And the geophysicist Klaus Jacob will elucidate the complexities of dealing with rising seas and heavier rains. In her 2017 book, Democracy in Chains, Nancy McLean, a professor of history at Duke, explored the connections between libertarian economics, notably the version developed by James Buchanan, and the South's resistance to school desegregation required by the Supreme Court's decision in the Brown v. Board of Education case. Reduced to a sentence, arguments around freedom were used to keep black kids out of white schools. The right hates it when this is pointed out, and McLean suffered a torrent of abuse from the libertarian corner, with assistance from some oh-so-high-minded liberals. But truth can be uncomfortable. Last month, the Institute for New Economic Thinking published a related paper by McLean on Milton Friedman's participation in this line of thought. Friedman hated the very idea of public education, which in the short term he wanted to replace with a system of vouchers, public funds that parents could use to send their kids to private schools. In the longer term, he hoped to abolish public education entirely. His agenda fit nicely with the segregationists, and it provided them with intellectual cover. They weren't racist, they were freedom lovers. Here's Nancy McLean with more. Somewhere in Melinda Cooper's book, she quotes someone as saying that Milton Friedman demonstrated an amazing capacity for having this vision, idealistic, if you want to call it that, vision of the world, combined with a really incredible practical political sense of how to get it. What's your reaction to that characterization? He was very involved in the policy world. I don't think he was as swift at the strategy to make the really radical long-term transformation. And that was certainly the kind of critique that Buchanan had of him and that uh, Charles Koch had for a time that they thought he was kind of trucking too much with the Republican Party and making you know, sell small out. changes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sell out. Um, but that he was making small board changes without, you know, radically changing the, the field of play. But he was a very effective polemicist, right, in the, the, the Newsweek column on a TV. For that, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for that. I mean, I was talking about the practical stuff because of the, you know, advising of Republicans. But on the polemical side and the propaganda side, yeah, he was really without peer among them, I think. I have to say, um, reading uh, Capitalism and Freedom, uh, Capitalism and Freedom, Capitalism and Freedom really changed my life for a little while. I was uh, briefly a reactionary in college, and uh, that book had a lot to do with it. I think I remember you telling me that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. when you were at Yale, you were yeah, on the, the, the party, party of the right. The right. Yeah. Well, Friedman had a way of making it sound attractive and, you know, fighting the draft and and ending criminalization of marijuana and other things. So, uh, you know, his was the more attractive vision, I think. It is a notion of freedom that appeals to the adolescent. Yeah. And particularly uh, adolescent men, right? I mean, it's always been a cause that has, has skewed male. It's uncanny, yes. Okay. Now, the general background here. In your book, you make the point that uh, resistance to Brown versus Board of Education was a really important impetus to libertarian thought in general, right? So let's 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 set that as the background that James Buchanan and such. This it wasn't just Milton Friedman; it was the entire conservative movement of the time was really energized by the fight against uh, desegregation. Yes, but I would add the caveat to that that they saw it as an extension of everything they hated about the New Deal. You know, so it's it's building on that foundation. Yeah. And what was it they hated so much about the New Deal? They wanted that freedom to dominate, ultimately. You know, I think that Corey Robin is is right about conservatism really representing this lost, you know, feeling of what was lost by these guys that used to be able to dominate <laughs> freely and no longer could. So I think they felt acutely the loss of bosses' rights with the New Deal. They were feeling the loss of states' rights. You know, I think they thought, you know, what is the federal government being able to do, telling us what to do with our businesses? You know, all of that, that kind of thing. It's funny, uh, related to that, uh, I once interviewed a Brazilian political economist who said that one of the reasons the 
upper middle class hated Lula so much was that he encouraged their maids to be rude to them. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, in the I don't know if you know this, but in the South, they there were rumors of Eleanor clubs with exactly the same content. The idea that Eleanor Roosevelt was getting maids to be surly to their their white mistress employers. Good lord. Um, anyway. We had National Review was founded in 1955, the year after Brown, and uh, Milton Friedman had this 1955 manifesto against the public schools. So, yeah, what what was that essay like, uh, and what inspired it? It was, you know, in some ways, sort of seen anodyne. He he took the occasion of a festschrift for a mentor to make the case, but he was clearly coming off the Mont Pelerin Society meetings that he had attended as kind of the young kid on the block uh, in 1947. You know, then it's, you know, almost a decade later and he's sort of feeling his oats. And I think he saw what was happening in the South as a way to act on what he called the new faith of neoliberalism and to make this case against what he called government schools you know, to use the language of anti-monopoly, of liberty, of parents' rights, et cetera, to provide a respectable way to get the private schools, private um, segregation academies that the massive resistors were seeking. The initial story was about vouchers, that is redirecting public money for private usage and also maximizing parental choice. But Friedman's ultimate preference was that uh, parents should just pay, right? That the public sector should be out of education. Yeah, I think that's really the contemporary relevance of this. I mean, besides buttressing uh, structural racism uh, at a time when it seemed like it might begin to crumble, the other really important contemporary resonance is the fact that Friedman was quite open beginning in 1955 and all the way up to uh, his death, close to his death, a few months before when he addressed that ALEC meeting that I quote in the conclusion, where he basically said, our dream is it's not vouchers you know it's not like school choice in as in its own right these are a, a tactic what we want to do ultimately is end public education and as he put it have parents pay for their children's schooling as they pay for their food and shelter except for perhaps a few charity cases so the idea again of this this conservative talk of load shedding, right? Their idea is to take one of the most fundamental responsibilities of government in a democratic society, public education, and push it off to the private sector where it can become for-profit and where parents will be faced with a huge variety of choices uh, geared to how much they can pay. So, you know, we've already slid into that world in some ways because the right has, you know, so harmed public schooling in this country, but, but Friedman actually wanted to get rid of it entirely and he was absolutely open about it. And one of the things I found fascinating in going through his papers at the Hoover Institution is the fights that he would have with his allies in the school choice fight, because he would always be saying, what are you doing with these little penny anti-voucher programs for poor Black children when we need to get rid of public education entirely? And they would write back and say, we know that's the ultimate goal, but we think this is the way to get the camel's nose in the tent. So that was actually the book that I was writing when I discovered Buchanan and the Coke connection and went the way that I went in Democracy in Chains. But the, the Friedman papers were really uh, pretty hair-raising. It's like the debates in the left between reform and revolution. <laughs> yeah, very much, actually. That's a really good analogy, Doug, that ironically I hadn't thought about. But I mean, definitely, yes, he was saying to his partners, why are you pussyfooting around with these little reforms when we need to be arranging this in such a way that it will lead to the full privatization of education with parents being responsible for their children's and of course, this model can be extended to Social Security and health insurance, you name it. They, they wanted the government out of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a way, it's funny because with Friedman, he was so open. And one thing I appreciated in going through his papers, unlike Buchanan's papers, is he would pretty much tell everybody what he thought and would respond to, it seemed like, almost all writers, uh, all people who wrote him. So I do appreciate that because what what 
I guess made me shift to Buchanan and and to Coke was seeing their recognition that hey we're never going to break through in a popular way <laughs> people don't want this stuff you know experience has taught us that again and again so let's see how we can get it by stealth right so instead of talking about privatizing social security they talk about social security reform and count on journalists who don't know that that is the goal so the journalists never ask the follow up question oh well, if you want social security reform, do you support the original principle of social security as social insurance, right? And they can't answer that honestly, but they're not even put to the test because most mainstream journalists don't really understand what's going on. Uh, yes. Yeah, I guess it's a little more complicated when you don't have General Pinochet to shoot people and accomplish your social security privatization that way. You have to be a little trickier. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, too, because Friedman famously visited Chile under Pinochet and Buchanan advised on that so-called constitution of liberty that was adopted in a phony plebiscite in 1980. And, you know, I'm sure you followed two years ago what the Chileans call the social uprising, where millions of people were in the street, 20 people lost their lives uh, in a fight against that constitution, which was totally shackling democracy uh, in Chile. And they actually won a referendum to decide on whether there should be a new constitution and one that vote by more than three to one. So that process is underway now. It took decades of struggle, but it is really exciting to see that process underway in Chile. For um, Friedman, forcing parents to pay for school would have, as economists might say, a positive externality of forcing the poor to have fewer children. And he is explicit about this, right? Yes. I mean, that was another jaw-dropping moment in seeing this piece and other things that he wrote. So clearly it was something he thought about more than once. Yes, absolutely. He said essentially a side benefit of having these parents responsible for their uh, paying the full cost of their kids' schooling is that it would encourage those of lesser means to have fewer children. This is really what we're talking about privatization as social engineering to make life unbearably hard for people who earn less money. Uh, you know, and we've already shifted so far into that society that it seems important to me to lift up that that is actually an explicit goal <laughs> of these people. Yeah, the ghost of Thomas Malthus hovers over this. Yes, absolutely. Now, in the background here, the historical background, there are Southern politicians who are willing to close the public schools. Then uh, They'd rather do that than accept uh, desegregation. And Friedman gave them kind of a way out, right, by talking about freedom instead of race? Yeah, the original school vouchers were racially based, right? They were for attendance at segregation academies. They were explicitly for the purpose of defying the court's order to desegregate public schools by taking advantage of the loophole that private schools wouldn't, wouldn't be subject to that mandate because they were private. And this was pre-Civil Rights Act and everything. But that made them vulnerable. The fact that they were racially based, you know, at a time when the court was recognizing race as a matter that should be subject to more strict scrutiny. And so the savviest Virginia segregationist, and this man that I write about, Leon Durr, whose CV included destroying the most promising civil rights union in the South that uh, Bob Corstad wrote about in Civil Rights Unionism, uh, red baiting it into destruction. But anyway, Leon Durr really recognized this. And, and so he was the one I was on before I was following Friedman. And it was his papers that led me to Friedman. Leon Durr was this former Washington Post journalist, a very smart guy, very rich guy, too, who would say things to James Jackson Kilpatrick, the leading segregationist, like, the market solves all our problems. Freedom is the answer, meaning that he knew that race-based vouchers would never survive court review. They would be vulnerable for that. So his idea was to switch to the so-called freedom of choice of association, he initially called them and then eventually freedom of choice vouchers. But the idea behind that was by taking the overt racism out of the equation, you might survive court review. And in fact, Virginia went to a second plan in 1959, the Almond Plan that followed that. He was the first witness, <laughs> um, Leon Durr, and they followed that plan and they managed to keep their segregation academies funded for another crucial decade that undermined the capacity for Brown to have the effect that 
that so many African-Americans and supporters of the decision wanted to see. Uh, so this Leon Durr was an interesting character. I actually did this research before Democracy in Chains and I was coming back to it. So I'm trying to remember now whether, I, I think he learned of Friedman's piece from Friedman's student at the University of Virginia, Warren Nutter, who was working with James Buchanan at their new Thomas Jefferson Center for Studies in Political Economy uh, and Society. Durr and Friedman became correspondents and started sharing resources. So uh, Friedman alerted Durr to studies of the American Enterprise Institute. He connected Durr to Catholics for Educational Freedom, a new Catholic group that was organizing for vouchers, mainly based in the North, but who started working with Leon Durr and Friedman to get nationwide action they were trying to get from Congress. So really, really interesting. But, but Durr and Friedman did have have this insight that if you stripped off the overt racism that was driving the campaign, you could make surprising allies and possibly keep it court-proof for a good long time. I'm speaking with the historian Nancy McLean. And Friedman himself always professed uh, that he was not a racist, not a segregationist, he just was for freedom. Yes. So that, I think, is, is one of the more interesting parts of the paper and the research is this discussion that I report on between him and Robert Solo, not the Robert Solo Nobel Prize winner with a W at the end of his name, but Solo like alone, who is editing this volume. And Robert Solo, to his everlasting credit, challenged Friedman on multiple points, saying, you know, essentially, like, you know, how can you be proposing this when this is, you know, the strategy that the arch segregationists are seeking? you know, don't you realize how your piece will be used? How could you advocate such a thing when African Americans are kept from voting? I mean, he called them Negroes, you know, so the piece, you know, obviously is dated uh, linguistically, but substantively, he raised all the crucial points and Friedman uh, would have none of it. So I think that's interesting, too, because there's often a tendency to apologize for conduct like this by saying, oh, well, nobody was raising these issues. Everybody would have done it. And that is absurd because African-Americans were fighting these vouchers. Um, the head of the NAACP team in Virginia, who led the, their part of the Brown litigation, said quite plainly that no one has a right to have his prejudices uh, subsidized at public expense. And also Robert Solo was challenging Friedman. So it's not at all the case that he was acting innocently. In fact, others had brought to his attention what he was doing and how dangerous it was. And in fact, the um, conference that I uh, report on that uh, Friedman came to in 1957 at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and the idea was to promote the free market worldview among or free enterprise worldview among young men, you know, young, young male academics. Um, this was sponsored by the leading free market, you know, fundamentalist group of the time, the Volcker Fund, which was the direct predecessor to Koch's Institute for Humane Studies. Um, and Friedman was there making his case for vouchers aggressively on the eve of the schools being shut down in Little Rock, Arkansas, right, with uh, Central High School being shut down. And so all this stuff was in the news. He knew exactly what field he was playing on and what team he was effectively aiding. Now, I'm sure he would have said, I'm just doing this tactically to achieve freedom. But, but it is worth noting, too, that even his protestations of being against racism and segregation were very tempered. So he said he was against forced integration as he was against forced segregation. So as far as I know, he never raised a voice against, quote, forced segregation, but he did repeatedly protest what he called forced integration, whether that was in opposing Federal Fair Employment Practices Commission, um, uh, as he did uh, in also in the uh, late 40s and 50s, or uh, opposing the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as he did while he was advising Barry Goldwater's campaign, which of course only won in the states of the Deep South that practiced the most egregious uh, voter suppression. I don't believe that he was primarily motivated by racism. I believe he was primarily motivated by this dogma that he had imbibed in a kind of conversion style, as he himself wrote about it, the new faith. Um, but at the same time, I don't believe anyone who considered African-Americans to be 
truly their equals and and deserving of equal citizenship could have ever done what he did. You mentioned the NAACP leading the fight against the vouchers in Virginia. And of course, the state of Virginia was trying to dismantle the NAACP in response, right? Yes. And I also, yeah, I write about that in the paper. You know, here, these guys were Milton Friedman and Buchanan and Warren Nutter and all the Northerners, you know, who came to their uh, support in this. They all prattled on about freedom, liberty, etc. But not a one of them said a word about the laws against seven laws against the NAACP that were part of this massive resistance package that authorized the school vouchers. These measures all also aimed to drive the NAACP out of existence. So clearly there was not among these libertarians and uh, economists, academics, any interest in standing up for freedom in the way that most of us would construe it as, you know, freedom to participate equally in the political process, freedom to uh, exercise First Amendment rights, all of that, they they showed no interest in. The one thing they did show interest in was in privatizing public education in the name of liberty. And now you mentioned James J. Kilpatrick a couple of times, and um, he was a stalwart of the early National Review. National Review was founded in 1955, same year as Friedman's essay, the year after Brown v. Board was uh, decided. How did uh, the massive resistance figure in the early conservative movement Buckley was trying to revive? Yeah, uh, it figured in a very big way. So William F. Buckley adored James Jackson Kilpatrick and brought him into the National Review inner circle, um, brought him on as a correspondent, wanted his him to write about civil rights and the Constitution. You know, and this is the same figure who was behind the agitation for massive resistance in Virginia, who uh, unearthed John C. Calhoun's theory of interposition uh, that the state's ridiculous state's rights doctrine settled with the Civil War for other people. But to say that Southern states could interpose their authority against the federal government to fight the Brown versus Board of Education decision. He was a very aggressive and vocal racist. And, you know, he became a leading voice for the conservative movement. He toned it down when he got a Newsday gig where he was writing for a national audience that didn't want to hear some of this stuff. But he essentially did what his fellow massive resistors in Virginia did, which is to repackage their segregationist commitments in a language of freedom, of hostility to the federal government, etc. But there too, it's kind of interesting in the way that the antipathy to federal action for civil rights was also connected to a longstanding hostility to uh, the New Deal, as we were talking about before. Um, And even you can say some progressive era reforms Kilpatrick was an extremely ambitious uh, man. He was not actually born in Virginia. He was born in Oklahoma. He came to Virginia. He married into a fancy Virginia family trying to get himself ingratiated into this very hierarchical, oligarchical state. And he also very much wanted to please his own boss at the Richmond News Leader and the boss of the state, which was Senator Harry Byrd, whose political organization dominated Virginia. So the boss that Kilpatrick was trying to please at the Richmond News Leader, as I write about in the paper, was one of the trustees of the Foundation for Economic Education, this other longstanding libertarian economic liberty outfit that uh, Charles Koch and you know all the gang today are still affiliated with. And it turns out, when you look at this massive resistance history with these new lenses, you come to find that some of the leading massive resistors were also trustees of the Foundation for Economic education. So, I mean, it's just a story with layers and layers and layers of revelations that really put both the opposition to civil rights reform and the opposition to workers' rights and the New Deal in a new light by showing us how committed all these parties were to a system of racial capitalism that they didn't want to see touched. And I think this is a really telling backdrop for the Koch-funded groups that are attacking so-called what they call critical race theory today and trying to use that to uh, batter 
scared white voters into submission in the 2022 midterms. You know, God forbid, should they have a chance to think about what the Biden economic program might do for them uh, and these other reforms might do for them, which are actually very popular. No, they start a holy crusade against something they call critical race theory to agitate the racist instincts of the Republican base and pollute the public discussion at this critical moment for economic recovery and uh, so much else. It's striking to read this stuff now uh, with all these Southern governors really amping up their fight against federal authority, uh, their, their insanity around COVID, uh, the critical race theory that you mentioned, voter suppression. It's like we're back in 1955 again. I know it really is, Doug. And it's also interesting because um, one thing that these uh, and it's not just sadly Southern funded governors. Right. It's also all these you know, there's 30 states that are controlled by this radicalized Republican Party now, and they all represent minorities of the population. And the way that they stay in office is by rigging the rules through gerrymandering, destruction of unions, voter suppression and all the rest. But one of the things that they've done to ensure the minority control of more rural-based reactionary forces is uh, preemption, using the authority of state governments to abrogate things done at the local level. So essentially, in many states, you have Kansas, Oklahoma, Georgia, et cetera, even Florida, you have um, these very white governors and, and legislatures that are basically tearing up policies made in black and brown cities in the name of state powers and preemption. And they're doing that to an unprecedented degree. But here's an interesting way it ties back to the story of massive resistance. That is exactly what massive resistance included was this capacity for preemption. There were many prongs to this this policy of program of massive resistance. One was the school vouchers. Another was this attempt to destroy the NAACP. But a third prong was the use of preemption, uh, you know, we would call it now, to say that any local school district that was on the verge of desegregating would be shut down by the governor to keep them from doing that. So actually, in the fall of 1958, the governor shut down schools in three Virginia districts, locked out 13,000 white children, because it was their schools that were going to be integrated, locked out 13,000 white children for the entire fall of 1958 until federal courts finally compelled them to reopen the schools. So that use of preemption there is really a kind of a, a prequel to someone like Florida's Governor DeSantis trying to tell schools that, that no, no school district is allowed to have a, a mask mandate. It's the same abuse of state authority from this cause that has told us they oppose federal authority because they want to keep power close to the people. But that's obviously not true. Where they want to keep power is at the state level, which is much easier for corporations uh, to dominate. And also, as in 1950s and 60s Virginia, much easier for rural white conservative interests to dominate. The cabal of good old boys. Yeah. But as this underscores the point uh, that uh, their idea of freedom is not freedom from domination, but the freedom to dominate. Yes, absolutely. That was Nancy McLean, a professor of history at Duke and author of How Milton Friedman Exploited White Supremacy to Privatize Education, a paper recently published by the Institute for New Economic Thinking. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of Vespers for a New Dark Age, The Machine Movement, by the Brooklyn-based composer Missy Mazzoli, performed by her ensemble, Victoire. And now, how New York City and other coastal areas can deal with rising seas and more intense storms as the climate gets nastier. It's a huge challenge, and here's Klaus Jacob, a geophysicist at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, to tell us more. The paper you sent me uh, was mostly about uh, the response to Hurricane Sandy or the the threats that the Hurricane Sandy made clear to us. So let's review those before we talk more generally. We're having these one in seven hundred year events. Uh, it seems like pretty often now. What's the odds of something like Sandy happening again soon? Formerly, it was a multi hundred year event, but that's based on past history. So it's a little bit more difficult to predict what the future holds. The future is always uncertain, but the tendency is as follows. The number of total storms in the Atlantic probably doesn't go up with climate change and global warming and warmer oceans and warmer atmosphere. But the storms that we will have will become stronger. So if you just look at the strongest storms, category three, four, they will increase in frequency substantially. So there might be in the future, that's just a rough guess, about twice as frequent as before. So if you ask me, when will be the next Sandy? I don't know. Nobody else does know. And the short answer is, we better be prepared. We're facing two simultaneous problems here. One is the increasing intensity of the storms, if not frequency, but the other is that the seas are rising at the same time. I mean, it's, it's going to make it even worse, right? This will compound the problem. Absolutely. Each time uh, the sea level rise goes up a foot, you need a storm that's weaker to cause a storm surge a foot less, and you have the same amount of flooding going on. And if the sea level rise is two feet, you need a storm that needs a two-foot lower storm surge. But weaker storms are more frequent, and therefore the kind of flooding that we saw during Sandy will become, by the end of the century, just from sea level rise alone, nothing else if the storms stay the same, about 70 times, 70 times more likelier or more frequent. So instead of if Sandy was a 700-year storm, it would be now a 70-year storm. And even that, folks say, oh, that means on average 70 years. No, the annual chance that something like that will occur is 1 over 70, okay? So it's a little bit more than 1% chance that it will occur. Yeah, that's getting pretty serious. But even when the, the skies are clear and the wind is gentle, as the seas rise... A place like New York City, which is surrounded by water, is uh, going to become uh, inundated, right? What kind of um, progression of the seas into this uh, into the city are we expecting in the coming uh, years? Just the mean high water, which is the average of the two high tides per day. If you add the projected sea level rise to it, it will look by the end of the century, the mean high water, a little bit less than sandy. That's on a nice sunny day. And then you have storms in addition to that, okay? We have about half a million people living in the flood zone now, the FEMA 1% uh, per year flood zone, also called 100-year flood zone. And by the end of the century, it will be twice as many people if the population doesn't increase. And it looks like New York is growing in addition to that. Now, when we talk about New York, this is true for most coastal cities, right? Most of our, we have a whole lot of large cities, a very large portion of the population living at or near the coast, right? So we're talking about a very large portion of the U.S. landmass and the U.S. population, not just the U.S., the rest of the world in a similar situation. And one of the best examples for that is the Bay Area. Bay Area has a lot of low land, particularly in the Southern Bay, and you also have Sacramento river lowlands there. It doesn't look good for the Bay Area either. What can we do? We have a number of options. Your paper from several years ago lists several options. Um, Go through them. What kind of preparation, what kind of uh, mitigation can we undertake? Let's get the terminology first right. Mitigation in the climate world means 
you put less greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. When you reduce your risk from the impacts, then we talk about adaptation. So I think let's discuss what option we do have for adaptation. One is defense. Build barriers, sea walls, sea gates, you name it, like the Thames barriers, like the Dutch have the barriers and so on. And Petersburg in Russia has now. And Venice has them now. Yeah, right after Sandy, there was this idea that we're going to build this gigantic gate that was going to um, shut off New York Harbor, right? Yeah, well, that's uh, still not dead. uh, But here is my comment on that. This is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers project called HATS. H-A-T-S stands for Harbor and Tributary Study. And it has several uh, options. And the option two is building this huge gate system that reaches from Sandy Hook in New Jersey to Coney Island across the outer harbor. It's several miles long, of course. There will be gates to let uh, the ships in and out. And so you close it when the storm comes. That's all fine and good. But what the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers did not consider is sea level rise. Why is that important? Well, you say, okay, so if we have a couple of feet, six feet or so sea level rise, which is the New York City panel of climate change forecast by the end of this century, then we just close the gates permanently, and except for the ships getting through. And that sounds doable from an engineering point of view, but what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it is that we have a Hudson River and a Raritan River that want to get out of the ocean. So you get flooded from behind. So for sea level rise, barriers are totally useless. They are only good to keep short-term storages that last for a couple of hours or a day and maybe two days, because after two days, you know, the rivers behind it you now start to raise their ugly necks or beautiful necks however you want to call it. So that means that barriers are only a temporary solution that when sea level rise gets comparable where we would close them now during storm surges towards the end of the century or so, they are not functional anymore in protecting the city. They still could protect them from additional storms. But if sea level rise floods like storms surges do now, it's useless. Okay, then what about uh, accommodating? I believe that's the term you were using. Building yeah. differently. What about that? Accommodation means that you live with the water, let the water come. You raise your house where you can raise it. Or if it's a skyscraper that suddenly stands in the water, you would have to give up the lower below grade floors and maybe even the first floor and start the functioning of the skyscraper in the second floor, which means you have to put a lot of the building infrastructure on top of the building or on the 10th floor. That means you give up rentable space and it's question whether actually the skyscraper will be functional because people have to get to and from uh, and the garbage has to be collected and all the rest of it. I always say we have in New York City uh, a wonderful institution called the High Line. So we need more High Lines to connect all those skyscrapers downtown. So uh, Wall Street can be flooded and the ducks and geese can float around on them. And we walk on, the, uh, on all those highlands from building to building. That's one vision. That's accommodation. Now, it sounds a little bit fanciful, but it's a hypothetical option. My sense is that Wall Street firms may not like that so much. They probably are not the folks that we really have to worry about. They know how to take care of themselves. They just move somewhere else on higher ground, whether it's inside New York City or somewhere in Connecticut or Jersey or So let's not worry about them. What we really have to worry about are all the neighborhoods of the people that don't have the resources that the Wall Street firms have, and what do we do with them? And that's where we come to the third option. I'm speaking with the geophysicist, Klaus Jacob. 
Before we get to that, um, the subway is an issue, right? The city couldn't work without the subway, and the subway is going to get increasingly flooded. So what do we do? That's an engineering problem that can be solved. We run the subway right now under the East River, and it works just fine. So just think of it that the East River is a little bit wider and a little bit higher. So it only costs money. I mean, it costs a lot of money in the tens to close to $100 billion. But that's an engineering problem that can be solved. So that's not the issue. I'm much more worried about social issues that can't be easily solved, namely whether we really have to move people out of their communities where they are at serious risk as time progresses from sea level rise. Yeah, what about that? Um, Southern Staten Island is very vulnerable, right? Isn't there some um, uh, attempt to move that neighborhood? There's not only attempt, there's a success story there. The community had been flooded starting around the year 2000, every other year or so. They asked the city officials whether, together with FEMA help, they could be bought out. One neighborhood, Ocean Beach, and uh, one or two other neighborhoods adjacent to in Staten Island. And the city didn't want to hear anything about that. And then Irene came in the year 2011, and it was really tough going there in that neighborhood. And so they asked again the city whether they could help them to be bought out through FEMA funding, and the city just didn't respond at all. Then came Sandy, and then it got really bad. And most of the fatalities that occurred in New York City during Sandy were in that neighborhood. So they went back to the city. So now, please buy us out. The city still didn't want to do it. So they went to their assemblymen and senators on the state level and said, could you please help us to get this problem to the governor's attention? and use some of the FEMA billions of dollars that uh, the state is getting to be bought out. And indeed, the governor, Cuomo at the time, decided, yes, that's worthwhile. So he spent a couple of hundred million dollars to buy those neighborhoods out. And it's now marshland. Uh, the Frankmites there, wheatgrass, uh, known in English, uh, proper name is Frankmites is taking over the neighborhood. And then you mentioned a fourth option, insurance. Um, I was just reading about the insurance industry in the U.S. Um, they're really not very alert to climate issues still. Uh, they're lagging their European counterparts uh, by some. But uh, what about that as an option? The insurance industry walked away from flood insurance in the late 60s because they realized the way things are going and where we built This is totally uninsurable risk. People would not be able to pay premiums that cover the actual risk. And so they quit and decided to get out of the flood insurance business. And the banks and the real estate businesses got all up in arms. They said, we can't build any new buildings anymore without insurance. And uh, the bank said, we won't give any mortgage without insurance. And so they convinced the congressman that there should be a federal flood insurance program. And that was the birth of the national flood insurance program that FEMA was asked to operate and run. Well, they priced it in a way that was affordable with the result that they were already before Sandy close to $20 billion in the way. So it was clear that this thing is not viable. So Congress finally, four or five years ago, passed uh, a law that said, make the uh, insurance rates risk proportional, which FEMA did. And then the public came back and said, I can't pay my mortgage and such a high insurance. So Congress promptly canceled the rate increase and tricked the public in the sense that they said, okay, we cancel the price increase, but we ramp it up over a period of 10 years. So after 10 years, it will be risk proportional. So people are sort of lulled into thinking that, 
oh, it's going up, but you know, 10% every year I can afford. Well, but these are properties really that shouldn't be built upon. Absolutely. We should take the option three that we haven't discussed much, which is managed retreat from low-lying areas. People have to be bought out, but that's not the only thing. We have to have new housing, new schools, new hospitals, new transportation systems in the recipient communities that take up that half million people. Okay, So that is what I think politics, but also the public, doesn't fully understand yet. This is a major transformation with major investments into trillions of dollars nationwide. And we haven't discussed another kind of risk, which is what we saw a few weeks ago with um, Ida. Before that, there was Henri the week before, heaviest rainfall in an hour in the history of New York City. And then a week later, that record was broken with an even heavier rainfall. That's not storm surge. That's not rising seawars. It's just like really, really heavy rain the city can't handle. What kind of approaches can there be to that uh, greater intensity of precipitation? Yeah. New York is not the only place. Remember a few years ago, uh, Harvey in Houston, Texas, had the same problem. Uh, Meteorologists call them rain bombs. So you drop a rain bomb on a community and where does the water go? There are multiple options. Fundamentally, there are two options. That also applies, uh, for instance, to the subway. The first thing is you avoid having street flooding. And the second is you allow some street flooding, reduce hopefully the street flooding, and then protect yourself against the street flooding. So how do you reduce street flooding? Well, instead of making concrete or asphalt roads and parking lots, we have to have permeable surfaces where the water can trickle into the ground rather than having to find its way into a sewer line. The second one is that you increase the capacity of the sewer system, but then at the end point of that sewer system, you have, at least in New York City, where we have combined sewer, where the wastewater from the residential uh, office and industry goes into the same system as the runoff from the street. It's called a combined sewer system. We get this incredible influx during storms even if you had the capacity of the sewer system to convey that to the wastewater treatment plants, to treat this amount. And uh, that capacity right now is far from there. So what happens at least in New York City, but also in other places, not everywhere, where we have combined sewer systems, we release raw, untreated sewer into the surrounding waters which means if that happens in the summer, which is the time during hurricanes, for a couple of days or weeks, nobody can go to the beach in the vicinity of New York City because it's full of raw sewage. Okay, and then all these measures you're talking about are going to cost a lot of money. We're having a hard time passing anything through Congress at this point. And we're talking about really vast expenditures over the course of decades. What is the cost of doing something relative to the cost of doing nothing? One thing is for sure, doing nothing is more expensive than for doing something. Now, the something can be minimal, moderate, or really working well, which means it has a different price tag. And for the moderate and the lower end and the higher end, you get more return. You have to find that soft spot where in a cost-benefit analysis, the benefits are the highest compared to cost, okay? So you want a high benefit cost ratio, and that is a very complex undertaking, both from the engineering, from economic and uh, financial point of view. So nobody has yet done, neither in New York City, nor in the Bay Area, nor in Houston or anywhere else, made a systematic cost-benefit analysis. FEMA and the National Institute of Building Science, and I was even part of that study uh, some 15 years ago, made an analysis where we took all the FEMA disaster data and compared them to mitigation costs, meaning you improve things and what benefits you get. 
And it turns out that then we came out with a benefit cost ratio of four to one. That means for every one dollar you spend to protect yourself or do something good along those lines, you get four dollars back in not incurred losses. That number then over the years has increased from four to one to six to one. And the latest studies have shown it's 10 to one. For every one dollar you invest, you get $10 back in not incurred losses. In the US, we are proud ourselves of being smart financial business folks. What are we waiting for? Let's get going and get this business going with a 10 to 1 investment of benefit to cost. Come on, give me a break. You've been advising uh, governments and politicians about this for a while. Um, do you get the feeling they're listening? Are they taking it seriously or are they just hoping to kick it down the road? The short answer is they're kicking it down the road, but there's a footnote to that. Ten years ago, you hardly could talk about it. Then we had Katrina, we had Sandy, we had Harvey, Ida, and gradually the message starts to sink in, even on a federal, state, and local level. But we haven't yet the financial system involved in that, from the treasury to the banks to the private investors. They all have to be integrated into this major transformation that will have to happen. So unless we get the whole package together and a consensus between all the players, the weakest link in that chain that has to pull in the right direction will make the whole thing fail. And that's the problem where we are still failing right now. That was the geophysicist Klaus Jacob of Columbia's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of a cover of Nice, originally by the Swiss punk band Kleenex, which was forced for intellectual property reasons to change its name to Lilliput, done by another Brooklyn-based crew, Habibi. The original German lyrics are translated into Farsi. It's one of the latest crop of releases in Kill Rock Star's 30th anniversary compilation, Stars Rock Kill. Till next week, bye.